You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketing director for Studio 420. If you're in the cannabis industry, you most likely have heard of George Jage. He is a leader in the trade show industry, took MJ BizCon from a 20-table cannabis event and elevated it into the highly regarded show it is today. George recently introduced his latest iteration of trade show experiences and announced a new event called MJ Unpacked, which debuted last October in Las Vegas. The next show kicks off in New York City on May 18th. MJ Unpacked is unique in that it is strictly geared toward bringing together CPG brands with investors and retailers. You must go through a vetting process to attend, and if you don't fall into any of these categories, you won't be allowed to participate in this show. Let's hear more from George Jage and dig into his latest creation, MJ Unpacked. So, uh, great to meet you. Likewise. <laughs> Likewise, thank you so much for hosting me. Your name has actually come up a few times. You know, great things in the industry. Yeah, class act. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's jump in then. So, because I know you probably are busy and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, actually, the really kind of uh, exciting thing that I found out about your show, and I've been very interested in going to it, is your, uh, you know, how you approach shows and then other uh, trade shows. Um, through your trade show design, the ambiance. And I also know that you have a narrow focus on who can participate in the show. Uh, you vet out you know, attendees as opposed to giving a ticket to anyone who will pay for it. So I, I wanted to hear about uh, how you put together MJ Unpacked and um, to hear more about your show, um, upcoming show in New York City in May. You know, this is always, I've always been kind of I don't want to say thinking outside the box, but I've also been one to kind of challenge the status quo. I've been in the trade show industry for close to 30 years now. Um, when I ran World Tea Expo, um, you know, I really wanted to come out of the gate and do something different. We created a uh, hard wall blue shells for everybody to do a version. And, you know, we started doing things like hosting freight when I ran MJ BizCon. Um, and really just kind of looking at the whole experience that a end user has with our product. And, you know, it's sad, but, you know, most trade show operators kind of look at this and say, okay, we're going to sell somebody, you know, 100 square feet of real estate, put up some pipe and drape, and then put the entire burden of not only the cost burden, but the operational burden of setting up that booth. And and there's not some, most companies don't have a trade show manager or somebody that's you know, educated or has experience in that. But just, it's, again, it's just about really having a customer-centric approach to it. But specifically talking about MJ Impact, uh, you know, we really had a, had a little bit of time to think about what we wanted to do differently when we came to market because of the pandemic and really took a very strategic approach to kind of deconstructing the trade show and looking at the pain points that people have at all of the shows that are out there. It is a very you know, competitive market or oversaturated market as far as events go. But the first and biggest thing that for our event design is that qualification process. And, you know, we believe that the cannabis industry is a consumer packaged goods industry. We believe that the most important trade show in every consumer packaged goods industry is a brand focused trade show. And having, you know, been the person who took, you know, MJ BizCon from 20 tabletops to 1,000 blue show at the convention center back in 2014, 15, 16, and 17, 
at that time, you know, the licenses were just starting to be issued in a lot of states, you know, Colorado and Washington and Oregon and some of these other states started legalizing. Nobody really knew what a cannabis business, legal cannabis business was going to look like. Um, so they needed equipment, they needed software, they needed a machine in the corner that goes bang for any money Python mm -hmm. fan. No. Um, and, and really, <laughs> and, and, and they really needed to be able to stand up these licenses. But we really, I mean, the industry's changed so dramatically over the last eight to 10 years. But none of the trade shows have evolved, in my opinion. They all continue to be these kind of like endless rows of light bulbs and label makers that don't really, you know, have necessarily a, a strong value proposition or return on objectives to the brand and life and retail operators in our space. And when I say brand, by the way, I just want to pause there, you know, for the cultivators that are out there. I mean, as soon as you put your bud into, into a jar and put your farm name on it, that is a consumer packaged goods product, right? So... You know, really looking at that CPG side of the industry is a couple of key things here. First of all, um, we firmly believe that cannabis is going to kind of evolve in that kind of alcohol side of the business where you're going to have relationships with the consumers where the brands own them. Um, cannabis has been unusual. The retailers have primarily owned those relationships today, uh, but that's starting to change. Um, but it's also kind of the convergence of that brand and that retailer coming together, having a safe educational environment and having a trusted and transparent product that delivers on that experience that's going to either win or lose a consumer every time that a new person walks into it. So that fundamentally is kind of, you know, core to what we're trying to do. But, you know, by qualifying everybody that comes to our show as being a CPG brand or retail executive with the title and manager hire, we're taking out all of the noise, all of that dilution on that return on objectives and return on investment um, by providing a very elevated audience. So it kind of has the feel of an executive conference where you're going to talk to people that are in the same shoes you are, that have similar experiences, similar challenges, and that peer-to-peer -peer learning is also the highest form of education that you can get, period. Um, so we really want to kind of embrace that. Um, the second thing we did with our event design that was kind of different was, again, looking at that that cost burden, not just in, in terms of dollars, but in terms of, of time for people to participate in these shows. So doing a national CPG style show before there's a national market, you know, we recognize that a brand that's maybe coming from Washington or coming from Colorado and going to a foreign market in Las Vegas or New York, we're not selling them on the value of saying, you're gonna come here and meet with other retailers in your state market. You might, but you should already be doing that back home. But we just really listen to what the, the, the needs of the moment of the market of the moment are and what brands, most independent brands and retailers need is access to capital. Um, so we also open our, our doors up to accredited investors that are actively investing in cannabis. We're not looking for somebody who's got 100 shares of Pure Leaf in their E-Trade account, but somebody who could really have the both potential um, uh, and the intent of potentially investing into a cannabis company. So they need access to money. Um, the second thing is that, you know, for a lot of these smaller independent brands and retailers, they're looking to expand their footprint and not just, in, you know, outside of their state ecosystem. And there is going to be kind of, as I always say, a tsunami coming of money and operational efficiency from alcohol and tobacco when we legalize at a federal level. And if these companies don't build a moat around themselves, if they don't start expanding into multiple state markets, they're going to get washed out to sea and then we're going to lose some of the most innovative creative brands and these people that have given blood, sweat and tears to operate under, you know, punitive tax codes, you know, incredibly challenging regulatory structures, et cetera, 
So what we want to do is we really want to embrace the creativity and the thought leadership that exists in our industry on the gra uh, uh, grassroots, uh, grassroots level, no pun intended <laughs> on the grass, um, and, and really help support these independent business operators. I mean, this is the lifeblood of our industry. And I'll tell you what, I've also said this many times before, if we allow the thought leadership of the cannabis industry to get usurped by alcohol, tobacco, or pharma, <laughs> we've lost. Um, this is really a transformative industry. We need to protect the people that are operating in this industry for the right reasons, that recognize the med med medical value of cannabis, that are doing it as a safer alternative to alcohol that significantly reduces harm in our society. It's, it's, a, it's a great, uh, great thing that you're doing and the way you're kind of paring it down to get these people together to lift it up. Well, and not only do we, we also recognize, I mean, when you kind of think about the process of the trade shows, you know, so everybody, they kind of cram everybody in and they have this very unimaginative design of just running endless rows of kind of like, it's like, it's kind of like going to Home Depot on the weekend, right? Like, it's like, you can't get anybody to help you. You don't know where anything is. Um, there's a lot of redundancy throughout these trade shows on a, a, that are supply side focused. Um, and 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 so you know, typically you go to a trade show and you walk down and you maybe pick up a squishy ball or a piece of candy and somebody scans your badge and you talk to them for a few minutes. You know that tends to create kind of what what I would call like you know warm leads that that yeah. are probably cold by the time you get to them next week, but they're certainly unqualified leads. And, and we didn't, you know, when you look at how do people do business and and kind of where do you get the highest value, Pam is is by sitting down with somebody and having a conversation. So at the last event and, 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 and all of our events, we designed a lot of seating areas for people to be able to sit down and have those conversations. We had a huge lounge area when you walked into our last show with couches and soft seating. I had foosball tables. We had a bar that was open up at 10 o'clock. It was Vegas, we don't judge. Um, <laughs> we had some local musicians that were playing during the day. And you know, just really, again, kind of designing this almost like a business hotel where you would have a meeting and maybe you know, grab a drink at the bar and then grab a grab a place to sit down and have a conversation. People do business with people, not companies with companies. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, n nothing beats in-person contact, building relationships. And, and that's also true in my experience at trade shows is you want to weed through all the people that shouldn't be there and you just want to get straight to the people that you want to talk to or yeah. that, you know, will give you business. And it's like finding a needle in a haystack a lot of times if you, you know, I mean, you know, some of the big shows, I mean, you know what, probably 10, 15% of the people that are, that are looking for a job, probably 10 or 15, right. maybe 20% are thinking they want to get in the cannabis industry. They just don't know enough about it. Right. Um, you know, there's probably another 30% that didn't want to pay for a booth, but wanted to walk around and try to sell from the aisles. Oh yeah. Um, another, another 20% are exhibitors. I mean, there's not a lot left that really become qualified potential business, you know, contacts that you have there. And again, the leads don't often get followed up on when you're just scanning someone's badge and you can't really remember what to talk to them about. So um, maybe I'm wrong about the design, but in my research into um, MJ Unpacked, um, you're not doing booth styles, right? You're just doing glass case is all over. Is that how it's working? A little bit of both, actually. So we do have some traditional booths, and um, but again, we wanted to make this, you know, very turnkey. So we had 20 by 20 booths that were these gorgeous, you know, 20 foot walls with a full graphic, uh, couches and counters and everything else that most people would need, and a TV for any type of video display. We had some 10 by 10 booths again, you know, turnkey. So it's a hard wall booth booth package. Somebody can literally sign up for it, upload their online profile information, and then you know, send us their graphics and show up and, and just make it that easy for them. So 
but going back to the brands again, like the cost of them participating, I, I, I heard MJ business charging almost $7,000 a boost now, which is a little bit egregious. Mm. Uh, maybe the new owners want to squeeze a little bit of extra blood out of that turn up. Yeah. But <laughs> the, uh, the reality is the reality is, is that that's usually only a fraction of your cost to participate. And so if you need to spend another five or $10,000 to design a booth, ship it, um, set it up, store it, staff it and everything else. I mean, you, you might be 20 grand in for a 10 by 10 booth that's drowned out in a sea that's, you know, you know, 200,000 square feet of exhibit space. Um, so we provided these brand showcases as kind of a unique concept to participating. So the brands don't get stuck in a booth. They can walk around, they can network, they can have conversations, but we also tech enabled them so that the brands can basically, there's a QR code. So in advance of the show, people can go on and they can actually request a schedule time to meet with that brand while they're at the show. So we have a scheduling app that, that happens in advance. On site, there's QR codes on all these showcases, so somebody can scan that QR code, pull up the information in the event app, and actually direct message brand reps. And maybe they're, I'm standing in front of your showcase. Can we meet for a few minutes? I'd like to bring your product to, um, you know, the, you know, Rhode Island or Massachusetts or some other state. But again, those brands really need an opportunity to expand their footprint, and it's not going to be from acquiring another license that might cost them anywhere from a couple hundred to a couple million dollars, hundred thousand to a couple million dollars. And then setting up the infrastructure in that new state and having really just a, a second company in that market, but really facilitating those partnerships where companies that are starting to go that capital light method of finding a partner, licensing your product. In most cases, they want to kind of control that last mile. So they staff out a sales team and take care of the marketing in that market. But you have somebody else that's manufacturing that product. And on the edible side, you know, once you know, yes, there's some differences in, in using kind of the nano falsified technology or using a live present product. But a lot of the products, you know, whether it's a couple of different inputs for, you know, kind of the intoxicant. And then it's really, you know, what are the ingredients that you're using to make the product? What does the packaging look like? Um, what is the brand promise? Um, you know, how, how are you marketing and winning over consumers is going to make, make or break companies. I, I was thinking MJ Unpacked in New York is going to be for anyone who wants to get into the maybe the tri-state area or just the New York marketplace, but you're really promoting it for brands to start networking or building other relationships with other companies where they might end up in that marketplace, but not necessarily have to do the state-by-state -state setup, which they're all forced to do right now. Yeah, and, and so in Las Vegas, when we debuted our show last October, I mean, it was the first time ever in the history of the cannabis industry that there was a single show that had brands from every adult use market on display and retailers from every adult use market. And we had a lot of the medical market, you know, attendees showing up as well. Um, and New York's the same. Um, there's certainly going to be a coastal, you know, uh, disparity. I mean, we certainly had a lot of attendees that came from California, big, robust market to our Las Vegas show. Um, we have a lot of California companies signed up to, to exhibit um, in our New York show that are looking to kind of be able to get some reach into that market. With I think the biggest difference between New York and Las Vegas right now is just that New York hasn't licensed yet. Um, but it is really designed to be for companies that are looking to you know increase their national profile. Um, we have a lot of companies, certainly Massachusetts, you know, Rhode Island, you got Connecticut, you got New Jersey, you got uh, Maryland, you got New York obviously coming up with the license. Pennsylvania is going to probably be making some moves here in the near term. Yep. Um, 
And, and just, you know, really looking at this, uh, uh, certainly there's going to be a regional influence. One of these two shows is probably going to be bigger than the other from experience. And, you know, the Natural Products Expo West is much bigger than Natural Products Expo East. Um, the uh, fall show for the apparel industry, Magic, is always bigger than the spring show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be some seasonal and there's going to be some geographical nuances, but fall shows are very much designed to approach this from a national market approach. We know we're going to get there. So who's going to who's going to be ready? Right. Right. Who's going to be ready? Right. You have to start building the national brand awareness somehow um, or you're going to be. Yeah, you're, you're going to be way behind. But the other thing about New York City that could be really good for brands, it's the gateway to the global market, because New York City is where most tourists enter the United States. Pre COVID, we have 66 million uh, tourists visiting us each year. 66 million. So not only are you building your brand in the New York marketplace, the tri-state area, but you, you, you have access to 66 million people from all over the world. So once we go global, if you're in the New York marketplace, you already have that audience. Not, not, not to, not to sound uh, too Sinatra-y, but you know, if you can make it there. Right. And, but there's, there's truth to that. And I think there's a couple a couple of key things though that I really am excited about the New York market, and um, I know that was one of the things you want to talk about. I mean, first of all, what New York is doing on setting up its legislation and taking a lot of kind of contrarian you know approaches and, and unique approaches to what it's doing. I think. Um, and while California is a massive market, they've obviously you know struggled with actually kind of moving everything over from the legacy and the illegal market into a legal tax regulated market, um, you know, probably because they're overtaxing people. And they also, re- you know, they, they didn't take into account that, you know, the amount of supply of cannabis in the state of California, thank you, Emerald Triangle, um, for all that great meat that you provided us for for decades, you know, they put a fence around that. So now where is it going to be? Right. There's there's too much product going into the market. So people were forced to say, if I'm going to continue doing this, I'm going to have to continue to operate in the legal or the legacy market to continue my relationship in these other markets. But New York's taken a really unique approach. And I think that, you know, with what they're doing with the social equity, setting, you know, putting their money where their mouth is, $200 million, mm-hmm. you know, giving the first licenses to people who have been arrested. Um, for cannabis use or distribution in some capacity, but also putting a caveat on that, that they have to have at least 10% ownership and have uh, at least two years of business you know, ownership. Um, that way it's not just, you know, you're not going to set them up for failure. You're going to get people in there that understand how to operate a business. That are yeah, that's been one of my issues. I've been with the social equity programs around the country is, it's so hard to start a business as it is, um, but something on this scale, this much money, this compliance, I feel like they're not strong enough um, to take it on their own. Even if they go through incubator programs, accelerators, they need to have something more. And there's a, you know, they need handholding, really, most of them. Especially they need mentorship, for, they need access to capital, um, you know, they need, you know, training. Yeah, there's a couple good, com- there's a couple companies out there I mean, I, I feel like the franchise business model could kind of work for those people because that's pretty sure. much, it's not hand-holding, but at least they have a blueprint to follow and a yep. you know, big backup there. But there's a couple companies who are uh, doing investments um, specifically that the company is set up for, to do multiple 
uh, investments with um, these different these uh, social equity entrepreneurs. So it's an investment. So it is handholding because they they come in with the team, make sure that they're going to uh, to make it. And yeah, I think J Jason Weber, Weber and Wild, um, or uh, you know Chris Weber. I'm sorry, the basketball um, star. Oh. He's got a fund. They've got a fund specifically, you know, kind of geared toward investing into minority-owned businesses. Um, we actually have a social equity scholarship program. We've been very fortunate for the number of companies that have been supportive of that. And we're partnered with a group called Our Academy out in California run by Hillary uh, Yu. Um, and, and it's really a great program. I mean, it's it's designed to, it's an, a pre-accelerator, so uh, it's not an accelerator where they're necessarily investing the money, but they are investing the time. And they're taking these people, and it's called, their website is thisisourdream.com, if anybody listening wants to check it out. Um, and, and they're taking these dreams of these either BIPOC-owned business owners or social equity applicants and giving them tools to be able to, you know, build a business plan, create an investment pitch deck, um, you know, pitch to investors, um, you know, teaching them about all of the future pain and problems that they're going to have as a business owner, but doing it, in, you know, I mean, in a transparent way. I mean, you got to go into this industry eyes wide open. It's not easy. Um, not, uh, there's no immediate, you know, path to success. Um, one of our advisory board mm -hmm. members, Tucky Blunt Jr., I mean, you know, he's got Blunts and more. He's the first, you know, you know, convicted felon that got a social equity license in cannabis in California. And I mean, I talked to him about how difficult it is for him to operate a legal business, you know, amidst, uh, you know, all of the illicit market activity in his community. Um, so there's there's so many different factors. And I mean, who gets it right? But here's the, here's the big thing that's exciting about New York. I think New York has way more influence over, over Washington than California. I mean, certainly California has a massive amount of state representatives um, you know, based on the way that our House of Representatives is set up for population. But, you know, Chuck Schumer is obviously a senator from New York, um, you know, with... Um, Cory Booker out of uh, Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, with Mitch McConnell still, you know, kind of controlling the Senate, I don't know how we're ever going to get past that hurdle. Um, until his cronies know that they've got enough uh, action in the game to for him to, to green light it. But, um, you know, I think that there's 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 a big opportunity that you know, as New York goes, so, that, so will the rest of the country. Um, one, that they could follow some of the examples they're making and to supporting social equity and creating a more diverse industry that we hope we all want to have. Um, and second is just, you know, pushing the envelope of, of driving the conversation at the national level, allowing access to state banks, getting rid of 280, um, allowing interstate commerce packs, um, and then eventually we get to federal legalization. Yes, yep. You're talking about uh, uh, e-commerce packs, like between each state, between well, states, special. Well, interstate commerce packs in the sense that, you know, um, that, you know, like in California is, past legis is, is considering legislation right now to allow interstate commerce of cannabis amongst bordering states that also have legal programs. Oregon did something similar, but it was subject to federal legalization that could always be revisited. But again, going back to that problem of this massive oversupply in California, forcing people to, um, you know, to, if they want to continue their livelihood and their business um, selling plant medicine, then they've got to do it illegally. And so if California passes in Nevada, New Mexico, Colorado, Oregon, Washington are all connected. They could basically supply um, those states. And if you look at Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico alone, um, the biggest challenge in all those states is water. 
Um, and rather than you know try to force growing cannabis in arid desert country, um, they could certainly benefit from having an oversupply in the California market being delivered. Right. I, I, all of a sudden, I'm hearing a lot about that, those packs between the different states, bordering states. All of a sudden, that seems to be coming up. Um, so just one more thing about the social equity. Uh, you know, I, I also think that New York should give first dibs to legacy people because they're the ones we need to get into the market. Like you're mentioning in California, that's one of the biggest issues. If, if they're going to give them to convict, you know, people who were convicted of it, um, you know, I think bring the legacy players in first dibs. And I actually heard this. Uh, I, I was at Nikon in Boston and I saw Steve D'Angelo uh, speak and he was actually saying this. And I thought it was just a great idea is, you know, if you brought in the legacy players along with the convicted and the, you know, social equity people first dibs, you would think that the MSOs and the big players would really want that. Because when you think about it, if the MSOs come in now and the legacy people aren't coming in for a while, the MSOs only have, say, 35, 40% of the market share. But if they let the legacy people come in, bring all their market in, and then when the MSOs come in, they have 80%, 90%, 100% to, to compete against instead of just having that small. So yeah, I, otherwise- I have I, a good friend of mine in Illinois. He runs a uh, strategic advisory company it's like the weed in, in Illinois sucks. Um, and because it's it's there's four or five MSOs that, that own you know 80, 90 percent of the market there, there's not any any motivation for them to provide you know high quality craft cannabis. And those are really important topics. So I couldn't agree with you more. Um, if there's three things that I'm really hoping for in my lifetime. One is that we can get rid get all of the what I consider hostages out of jail that are serving time for nonviolent cannabis crimes. Yeah. Um, it was a bullshit war on drugs, and those people uh, we've destroyed enough lives and families and, and that are there. Two is we do need to bring the legacy market forward, um, and yes. we have, we actually are doing a session on that at our New York show, talking about legacy storytelling. I mean, when you talk about brand authenticity, um, it, you know that comes from storytelling, and the, the legacy operators have the stories. They're amazing stories, and. Um, you know, they, the ones that are using those legacy, you know, storytelling to really build their brand is going to be really important. Um, mm -hmm. uh, actually, Steve D'Angelo is going to be moderating that panel. Um, oh, so, okay. and, and I saw Steve uh, in Boston too. Ah, ah. Um, so, um, but you know, and then, then the third thing is again, is that we just really, you know, retain control of the thought leadership of the industry. I mean, there's a, you know, people that are operating in this space for the right reasons, really passionate about the brand. Um, you know, and, and I want to see that continue forward. I don't want this to just get overly commoditized um, and be yeah. about, you know, how do we, you know, build more money out of the public by, by, by creating brands that aren't authentic um, and creating an over-consumerism type approach to this. Um, I think we really have an opportunity with it for our are, are there any legacy uh, people exhibiting at the show? Um, so we do have a couple of legacy operators that are coming in. And so the New York market, not, you know, again, with our qualification process, um, we are allowing people that are applying for licenses or intend to apply for licenses. We still want to, you know, maintain a level of qualification. So we are asking them to provide us either a letter from their CPA or their attorney uh, indicating that they've, you know, formed a business or that they have the capital, you know, aside, set aside to, 
um, you know, execute this business or, um, you know, they have a, a letter of intent or some type of engagement with a group like Canada Advisors that's going to write their, their license application, et cetera. So, um, you know, we, we don't, you know, it's, it's tough for some of the legacy operators to exhibit at this point because they can't really, you know, technically put their product on display. And so, uh, but we still want yeah. them in the room because those people need to be part of our need to be part of the conversation. They need to see this. Right, right, yeah. I'm sure you've read, and it's been in the news everywhere, but there's so many of them out and about now and selling, you know, out in the streets. It's, it's yeah. kind of crazy. Wow, it's crazy. And then also, Steve said at this at the uh, at his speech that he said that New York City has the most the biggest um, operating underground supply chain in the in the legacy cannabis industry than he thinks anywhere in the world. It's a, so like how do you break that supply chain? But anyway, that's that's a whole other story. But it's it's going to be really interesting because I think most of these operators that are coming into the open want to to operate dispensaries mostly. Um, I don't think a lot of, well, some of them, actually I have met some that do have products actually. Um, they are trying to, you know, they are trying to develop their own products because they've been bringing stuff in from California and I hear now Maine uh, for a long time. So they are packaging flour and things like that. And I heard of another company up in uh, the Buffalo area. They have a uh, consumption lounge type place and they have been selling their lemonade, their THC lemonade. That's like ridiculously high THC lemonade, but it's very popular yeah. with their consumers. Yeah, and I've been I've been to a couple of speakeasies in New York, and you kind of go in, and it's, you know, it's an unmarked door, and and they might go up a freight elevator to a back back stairs, and um, you know, then they have a little like mock there but like I also when I go in there and I see that they literally have like fruity pebbles cocoa pebbles tricks and 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 and, and they're they just all you know, have that. straight up copying host cereals you know intellectual property that's not that's not a good way for us to go right like I mean we're, we're more creative than that I mean we smoke well, pot we're very creative um <laughs> so yeah <laughs> um, you know I hope to see some of the legacy operators start to move out of that but you go back to the California market and there was certainly really good intent there to, to create space for legacy operators. And it was my understanding of this that regulatory commission said, all right, if you're a legacy operator, we're not gonna ask, don't tell us, but we'll grandfather you into the legal market. But if you don't, we know about you, we're gonna have to come after you so that we can shut that down. But then, you know, what they did explain is if you do come into the, the legal market, we're gonna overtax you, so we're gonna bankrupt you. So it really was a zero sum game for, yes. you know, the legacy operators. And, you know, I think nobody's happy with where they're at. Yeah, I know. It's going to be tough. Um, so are most of the exhibitors coming to the um, the New York show, are they mostly um, consumables or ancillary products? Are there, is there... Yeah, we try to keep it to about 70% brands. Um, certainly we want to, you know, kind of filter out, like at MJ Biz, I think we had 120 packaging labeling companies that the last time. Like nobody needs to look at 120 different packaging Companies. So we do allow some ancillary companies come in, specifically around like marketing tech and or, um, you know, specific product lines that would help support a brand or a retail outlet. Um, but, you know, we really try to keep 70% of the brands. Um, we got some great brands coming in. Mr. Moxie's who's going to be expanding out to the East Coast. Um, they just signed a deal with Acreage, I believe. Um, Bank Chocolate, which is certainly a huge brand. Um, Grass, Toast, Little Saints, um, Fruit Slabs. 
uh, 40 Tons, which is a great brand, uh, kind of social equity mm. brand, Old Pal, uh, Dr. Norms, uh, Swift Brands, Rebel Spirit, um, Fernway, which is out of Massachusetts, um, Omura, VKKB Ventures, which is another brand company. So a lot of a lot of brands, Tribe Shoki, um, you know, that we expect to see out at the show. Um, cannabis companies tend to wait till last minute. Um, we're about eight weeks away from the show. Um, this is kind of the sweet spot where we have a lot of brands signing up right now. And again, with the solution that we offer that they can literally, um, you know, sign up today and send us some graphics, fill out their online mm. profile, and they're good to go, right? They don't need eight weeks to figure out, okay, how, what kind of booth do I need to design, you know, and uh, who's going to build it, who's going to staff it? Like, we just want to make this an easy button for people, and what we want to do is we want to put the right people in the room and drive transactional success by having people have conversations with people that are relevant to them. Is it mostly people coming from the East Coast or the West Coast or a mix of both, kind of? It's, it's early to tell, but the, right now, I mean, it's, it's really a very diverse audience. Uh, we have a lot of companies coming from, you know, from the kind of traditional, you know, West Coast states, Colorado to California and Washington, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we do have a lot of, you know, people signing up um, from the tri-state area, Massachusetts as well. And, and you know, Virginia is obviously becoming a pretty hot topic in the cannabis industry, um, Ohio, Illinois. Um, so, you know, we expect to see a pretty broad geographic distribution for our tenants. Um, attendance in the trade show space for cannabis, cannabis events tends to be in the last 30 days, most of it. Um, this last event we did in Las Vegas, 80% of our attendees registered inside of, uh, it was actually about 65%, but about 80% of the registration revenue came inside of October, um, you know, basically the last three weeks of the show. Um, when I ran other shows, I would, yeah, I'd see 50% is very easy that people wait till last minute. And, and there's just so much uncertainty in the world right now. So, you know, people might be like, I know I'm going to this event, but unless it's two or three weeks away, um, then I'm going to book my hotel, then I'm going to book my airfare, then I'm going to sign up for the event. Um, be great for us as organizers to have people let us know earlier on, but um, we're, we're seasoned, we're steady. That's got to be nerve wracking. Um, are you seeing a lot of growers coming or, or manufacturers? I'm, I'm just thinking a lot of these companies, besides building national brand awareness, are going to want to, you know, connect with people who are, that they can work with. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we have, you know, companies that specialize in pre-rolls and, and our grower you know, cultivators that are, you know, specializing in pre-rolls or in flower. Um, we see a lot of manufactured products. And I think that's what was part of what's really interesting right now is we're starting to see people that are partnering up to do multi-state deals where, you know, they might be a, uh, have a producer processor license in, in one state and the other state that one might be really good at like concentrates and vape cartridges and the other one's really good at edibles. And, you know, those two come together and now they bring the edibles brand under the brand A back into state A. And then they, the other one goes into the other state under their brand. Um, so that kind of is another way that they can kind of approach building out a multi-state footprint instead of saying, okay, I'm going to bring, you know, George's weed to Massachusetts. I'm going to let it be Bob's weed in Massachusetts, but he's going to sell my pre-rolls and I'm going to take Bob's and sell them as George's edibles in my state. Oh. Um, so, so you're seeing stuff like that, that, that is starting to, to happen. We had, I mean, some of the deals that got done at our last show were phenomenal, mm. um, and life-changing for some of these people. And that's, that's really what we're trying to do. Oh, that's so cool. Um, 
how about the people attending? I know you're still at the, I know you're yeah. at the last second, but just what do you see so far? Is it, is it mostly investors? Or are there a lot of people hoping to get dispensary license? Would they qualify to sign up in your uh, vetting system? Um, yeah, so um, so we're seeing people come from everywhere. I, I just was looking at a good friend of mine, Meg Sanders, who used to um, uh, run some retail in Colorado, is out in the Connecticut, Massachusetts area under Canna Provisions, just signed up for our show. Um, you know, so we see, you know, we're seeing a pretty wide range. So the invest, first of all, going into New York, financial capital of the universe, um, at least the known universe. Um, <laughs> you know, um, we are seeing a lot of, of interested investors that are looking to take advantage and we're continuing to kind of mainstream the conversation, especially for the capital community in New York, seeing, you know, all of this activity on the street where, you know, I walk down uh, Broadway and I probably have three people, you know, hold up branded weed that they're selling on the street, right? Oh. Um, you know, you've got the little, you know, uh, UPS trucks that are selling, you know, Delta 8, uh, you know, suckers on the corner and, you have Washington Square Park, which is down by NYU, the you know college town. They, I, I was actually riding my bike through there last week or something, and I saw these card tables set up, and which I thought with jars of pot. And I'm like, are these people just like setting up card tables around the fountain in the park? They were, they were all around the park. I couldn't but, believe it. But you've seen that in New York for a long time, where somebody's selling you know fake Gucci bags on the street. Yes, right. right. Um, so. You know, it's, it's, I, I think that, that the, the kind of true libertarian spirit of New York of kind of as long as you're not infringing on somebody else's rights, and I mean, yes, counterfeiting is infringing on somebody else's <laughs> rights, but pot certainly less so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's just part of living in, you know, the biggest city in the country, you know, country and really the, the most influential city in our country. Right. How about the Shark Tank style pitch uh, session where the winner will win an investment uh, partnership with uh, Canada Advisors, uh, you know, an advisory company that's been in business for 13 plus years. So I just wanted to have you just tell us a little quick thing about that. Can people still participate? So, um, you know, that was, again, going back to our event design was really important that we created access to capital. And I had launched a kind of micro cap conference in the past for cannabis. And, you know, so this is kind of a show within a show. Um, so there's a couple of things happening here. First of all, Can Advisors um, is a uh, uh, exhibiting with us and they're doing their own kind of competition. Um, and they are going to, in their private business suite, which is one of the unique features of our event that, you know, strategic advisory groups can take these business suites that are attached to the show. So they're not in a hotel suite across town, um, that we can bring them into the ecosystem. So they've got their own thing going on, um, that does involve, uh, uh, some capital and some consulting hours. Now we have our money stage, um, Deb Johnson, uh, who used to be with our group runs that for us. And so we do have a opportunity for companies that are looking to raise capital to pitch from stage. I wouldn't oh. say it's Shark Tank style. This is really designed to be more of like kind of a Roth conference or Sedoti conference where people can basically pitch in front of an audience of accredited investors. Um, what we did because of our first show and we want to continually to evolve and improve our product, we recognized that we wanted to make sure that this was a little bit more highlighted within our program. So we've asked about eight or nine really prominent investment funds to come in and commit to listening to these presentations and helping us evaluate to award a $5,000 pitch prize. 
and we will probably skew the uh, judging, you know, put some weights on the judges that will favor kind of earlier stage companies that would benefit more from a $5,000 pitch prize. Somebody raising $5 million isn't going to, you know, probably not going to make or break them to win that prize. Right. Um, but we wanted to do something to really kind of highlight the stage area. Also make sure that we have a, a dedicated group of investment professionals in there to listen to these presentations. Um, you know, some of them, you know, we've got, you know, Emerald Park Capital that does $100 million senior secured lending to larger companies. Um, we have Journey One, which is run by Helene Servion that, um, you know, specifically looks for opportunities to invest into minority owned businesses. Um, we have uh, some of the founders of Treehouse Global Ventures, which is a women led investment fund specifically investing into women led businesses. So we wanted to have a very diverse group. Um, Delta Emerald and other early stage uh, Satori um, investments are, are participating in this. We really want to make sure we had a good diverse group of investment professionals listening to the presentation, make sure we fill the room. And at the end of the day, we're focused on one thing, creating transactional success for our clients. And so when somebody comes in and they present from stage to raise money, we want to make sure they walk out of there successful. And we tie that whole program into providing them uh, we create a secure data locker with the um, with a video pitch and a one sheet. We send that out to every accredited investor that is coming mm -hmm. to our show in advance. It's and only those accredited investors, so we're SEC compliant. And then after the event, we um, have them put their deck in. Sometimes they like to redact some sensitive information they might have shared from stage, but we push that back out again um, to those accredited investors. And you know, Deborah and myself and, and our team, you know, if we have an opportunity to connect, you know, anybody with somebody that can create success, regardless if they're at our show, before our show, after our show, we're always out there trying to help connect people to create success. Yeah, I mean, also, if they're um, able to pitch to these investors and get some feedback, that's yep. really valuable, you know, whether they get the money or not, but just to have you know, if that's obviously what they're out there to do and to have that kind of feedback from these people is going to be, it sounds great. Like, sounds really great. Um, so the last question is, do you have anyone on the international CPG companies exhibiting at the show? Um, we actually have one company from China that's going to be coming to the show that has um, vape technology, so, you know, hardware and stuff like that. Um, but, but realistically, I mean, this you know, this is a domestic market. We do have some participation from Canada from both on the attendee side and um, investor side and, and even, you know, just retail side. Uh, because I think, you know, once we, you know, once the U.S. market establishes a federally legal program, then it's game on globally, right? I mean, you, know, you look at the biggest brands in the entire world, you know, the Coca-Cola's, McDonald's, by the way, Las Vegas in itself is a, one of the top recognized brands globally. Mm. Um, and, you know, the McDonald's, et cetera. I mean, this is an opportunity for, you know, us to create the, the Seagram's, the Bacardi's, the Anheuser-Busch and, and, and Miller Coors of the world for cannabis. And I don't want that to be Miller Coors or Bacardi becoming the Bacardi of cannabis. I want that to be a, a you know, truly authentic yeah. cannabis brand that gets, gets that type of generational wealth. Right. And then we have to get the uh, marketplace, the uh, e-commerce marketplaces going, you know, where people can just sell and not just have to worry about bud tenders pushing them in the dispensaries. That's another big problem that we're having in the industry. Well, Jeff Bezos is apparently working on that. <laughs> I heard there's another company also based out of Denver, Denver Everscore, I think. I think okay. they're building they're building a marketplace. Um, I don't know where they're at now. I think they were just launching last year, but I think we need things like that. 
So anyway, well, okay, that was great. I didn't need to take up so much of your time. It just was really interesting. I really thank you so much uh, for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.